You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. It is the long weekend here on 640 Toronto and Tasting Together, I guess. I'm Maroki Tong and Andre Pru, I hear you are not doing so well. I just don't know. My body has just given up on me. I'm on my second head cold of the early spring. I mean, thankfully not COVID, but it's just like, if there's one thing I don't miss about the pandemic is I went like two and a half years without getting sick. Uh, I ended up with COVID last summer, which wasn't fun. Uh, And then I had cold in December, which wasn't fun. And then one in March, which wasn't fun. And here we are in April. It wasn't fun. And it's just like, I haven't really changed my habits. I'm still washing my hands a whole lot. You should wash your hands. And uh, wash your hands. Uh, runny noses are the worst. Like, cause it, you know what? If I have to, if I have to compare COVID to the head cold that I have right now, at least with COVID, I didn't have a runny nose. Oh, I think I totally had a runny nose. I think the latter half. Actually, I don't remember. I don't remember. Maybe I should take that back. I did have a bit of a sinus infection a few months ago. Maybe that's just my memories. Um, But I guess in some ways you being ill was the inspiration for what we wanted to talk about because you, we wanted to discuss sort of comfort foods or home remedies for when you're feeling (laughs) ill. Cause I think there's not one of us who has ever, you know, in our lives gotten sick, who doesn't have a memory of certain foods that our parents brought to our bedsides, whether we liked it or not, and insisted that this was the food that was going to make us better. Yeah. um, I I don't mean to throw my mother under the bus a little bit, but it's just, it's one of these things where I had a lot of chicken soup growing up, um, but my mother like prides herself on how clear her chicken broth is, but the reality is it's clear because it's quite dilute. Um, mm. It's not a strong broth where I think as an adult, when I make my own broth, um, I recently, I had a, a, a fairly significant chicken carcass in my freezer. You know, as people do, keep the bones from your leftover chickens. And I made this super concentrated. I roasted the bones. And yeah, to me, a good, hearty, like rich broth just speaks comfort i've been eating a lot of soup maroki <laughs> well i'm just thinking about your mom's soup and i i think my mother's broths were equally i don't know if dilute was the right word but bland was certainly a terminology i would give to it <laughs> and i think it's because my mother believed that you know high like heavily flavored foods salt spice sugar were inflammatory to the body and therefore you shouldn't consume it when you're sick so I drank a lot of very clear broth okay. and a lot of very plain congee, like the, the most boring congee oh, you could so just ever like, have. So just like, just like rice soggy rice, poor, I mean, just soggy rice. I have a hard time like wrapping my head around because the, the best part about congee is all the flavorings that come in it when it's like made really well. And it's just like, as a grown up, I like, I've taken a lot of comfort in soups over the past few days. Um, I had some pho with uh, rare beef and beef balls, and that made me feel a little bit better, just like the comfort of the warm liquid down my throat. But the one thing I definitely need to be mindful of when I'm consuming these soups, because a lot of them are high in salt, is making sure I'm chasing them with a lot of fluids. I think that's 
we're not dispensing medical advice, but maybe focusing more on the old wives' tale part of it. But what is it? You're supposed to uh, drown a cold and starve a fever. I don't know. I can't remember which is which. I just something like that. I roll feed a cold, starve a fever. (laughs) I roll through so much tea and so much soup, and um, yeah, I don't know. I think soup is just the quintessential (laughs) comfort food when you're sick. You know, when you're sick, you 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 know, you're home from school and you want to eat tasty things. And I don't remember; it must have been my grandma. And I, my mom might have never forgiven my grandma for offering this remedy, but they used to make me hot Coca Cola. So they oh. literally took Coke and microwaved it and served it hot to me. Um, I think I, I learned later on in life that other people do this and they sometimes squeeze lemon in it or whatever, but it was just literally microwave Coke for me. And for me, of course, it's pop. I don't care if it's hot or cold. I'm just <laughs> excited to drink pop. And I was convinced that there, this was good for me. And it probably very much wasn't. Well, I mean, there is no nutritional value to Coke, but warm fluids are definitely good to calm uh, a sore throat, right? Yeah, yeah. Or or the opposite, right? Cold for suit, like popsicles. I don't remember. It was some throat infection I had. I remember the doctor saying something about sucking on like something cold. And they also might have made the mistake and said popsicle. And somehow I was convinced that I could eat endless amounts of popsicles in a day. And that day I managed to convince my parents to give me two whole popsicles to suck on, uh, which was more than I'm usually allowed. When I was a kid, my parents were quite stringent on how much uh sweets i ate so i think i usually got one popsicle a week if i was lucky and i got two in one day uh you just reminded me i have a whole bunch of freezies still in my freezer Uh, my wife and i we both end up with covid at the same time last july and uh i i think us as with a lot of people it was the searing pain in the throat that was like the key symptom for that and uh yeah we've just kept freezies in the house because i like freezies over popsicles just because they're portioned a little smaller um andre did your family ever give you like alcohol when you were sick like hot toddies as a thing so actually i remember drinking them as an adult and then you know my some of my friends would say oh i got these when i was sick as a kid and i was like oh my god your parents actually gave you alcohol as a kid as a remedy for illness so um hot toddies are something that i don't i don't roll to as much but it was something i did have growing up but my parents never made it with the alcohol we would do um like a lemon herbal tea with honey um which i guess is sort of like a hot toddy like you throw a shot of whiskey in there or a shot of of rye and you've got a hot toddy and you know when i was of legal age in university I drink a lot of hot toddies. Sometimes hot toddies when I wasn't completely sick because it's super cold in Saskatchewan and a hot toddy's just good on a cold day. Mm. I, I would be curious to know what uh, other want... cultures have in terms of the food and the remedies, whether they have considerations when it comes to like, you know, salt or inflammatory. This. So like in for us as Chinese people, I know we don't want to be feeding ginseng if someone's feeling feverish because that in some ways is supposed to be like fiery and gives more heat and therefore you shouldn't consume ginseng or ginger when you have a fever. Um, And like there's certain foods that, you know, like they would say like, oh, if you take too much garlic, it's bad for like 
it's thinning for the blood. So if your blood is weak, you shouldn't have a lot of garlic. And I, I, I would be curious to know what other cultures, if they have other like like similar foods that they would avoid eating if someone, say, has a fever or has a sore throat because they believe it's going to make it worse for you. I don't know if I have any personal experience with that, but I kind of I would like to hear that as well, because I, I have heard that. I have some friends who have gone um, to get some advice from Chinese medicine. I guess, sorry, are they mm-hmm. doc- doctors, Chinese doctors? And like, I've heard the whole like list of like things to eat and not to eat. And it just, I'm not going to lie. It's a little, it's a little strange to hear. Uh, I'd, be, mm-hmm. I'd be curious where, what the science is on whether that's true. Because I know like Chinese culture has a lot of superstitions. Yeah. Well, I just think about like Ayurvedic uh you know practices and i don't know much about it at all but i would assume that food and food plays a huge part in that and so i'd be curious to know if other cultures have that i'm sure that it exists in some like maybe some gaelic traditions as well and i'm just not familiar with it uh we haven't done a shout out like this in a while but you know you can always message andre or myself on instagram andre at andre wine review or myself at nine ounces please the number nine full ounces please uh those seem so complicated when i have to give my handles out but you know if you guys have traditions feel free to share them with us and speaking of traditions coming up after the break we're going to be talking a little bit about some food shortcuts when it comes to making dishes and whether it's okay to be making you know taking some shortcuts when it comes to making dishes or maybe you need to stick to the traditional way lest you ruin the quality of the food that's coming up on 640 toronto Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. I'm Andre Pru. I'm joined by Maroki Tong. And Maroki, you and I, it's no secret that we spend a little bit of time on social media. And I get mesmerized when I see those food recipes or I guess like the shortcuts that that pop up, like the TikTok recipes. Um you had something that caught your eye recently that I think led to a bigger discussion. Yeah, so I saw this video about making sushi like as a shortcut. And they basically took an ice cube tray, lined it with um, saran wrap, and then they put like the top piece of like nigiri. So I should specifically say nigiri sushi, not maki. Maki's the rolls, for those of you who don't know. Nigiri is when you have the little rice with like a little fish on top. So they would stuff like a little fish piece or a little cucumber piece, basically the top of it, the bottom. And then they smeared a bunch of rice on top of it all to fill up the ice cube. And then they said, put it in the fridge for 10 minutes. And then they come out and then you flip the whole thing upside down and you peel it back. And now you have all these multiple rows of neat little tiny nigiri-ish rolls and i kind of looked at that and i i will say i scoffed i totally was like wow like what a disrespect to you know sushi masters and i (laughs) i've been taught to make nigiri before it's not an easy process you have to sit there and squeeze the rice you can't get the rice too warm you you know because that's gross and but the rice is sticking to your hand you have to kind of flip in your hand in a really specific way and you don't want to over squeeze it because then the rice gets mushy etc etc it's clearly a craft but I was reading the comments and there were all these people saying, we're Japanese people. We think this is pretty cute. And the thing they actually were getting 
um, their knickers in a knot over was the fact that they put the put it in the fridge because they're like, when you put rice in the fridge, it like its texture changes, doesn't get as good. I think you don't need to put it in the fridge, or maybe ten minutes for cooked rice. So, so people were talking about the quality of the cooked rice, but the concept itself of making these um you know quick shortcut nigiri sushis was actually being praised and so I had this moment where I go well maybe I'm being too precious about certain things and some people like the novelty of just if you want to enjoy something but maybe don't have the skills or don't have the time maybe it's okay to take a shortcut and that's when I messaged you because I was thinking about you know other times when people take shortcuts and whether people think like wow what a novel and great idea versus the this is an absolutely terrible idea and how dare people approach food this way did you know they make a sushi bazooka as well what is sushi bazooka? Uh, it's like a giant cylinder, and it's for making maki. And you oh, is it like you you roll oh, it's it like off. a tube? You like press it through exactly, and then you just you push it out, and it slides out. I actually really appreciated that you picked sushi in particular, like that. This caught your attention because sushi is one of those things where I refuse to make it at home, especially after I, I moved to Toronto. Um, my brother's in love with Japan. My brother makes really great sushi. He's been to Japan like five, six times at this point. Uh, he's learned how to make sushi from Japanese cooks. Not any ma- major sushi masters. My brother doesn't work in the food industry, but like, I just, I won't do it. It's just too much work. I've watched my brother do it. It's too much work. So I appreciate that there might be shortcuts, but I think I'm still going to be going to a sushi place rather than getting the ice tray and making nigiri uh, with an ice tray. You know, the funny part is I, the, the thought I had was actually, you know, when you're trying to put those fish inside and you're trying to like fold it into the bottom of the ice cube tray, when you're smearing the rice on top, what if it all just falls in on itself? <laughs> that was actually my thought. I was like, it actually seems harder in some ways. But um, one of the other, sh- that actually prompted me to think of some of the other shortcuts that I've thought about food, especially with Passover coming up. Uh, I remember one year I had some trouble finding matzah. Yes. To make matzo ball soup. And one of Eric's family friends actually said, you know, if you have old stale matzo crackers from years before, because around Passover year, everyone buys boxes of matzo crackers. And then you use like the three or four for the Seder that you just don't. Then you just have all these this matzo for the next like two, three years. She was like, just grind up matzo crackers. And that actually will be the equivalent of matzo for matzo ball soup. Uh, but I don't know. You know I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily the same thing, though, or if it's being creative. Like, that seems like a move straight out of, like, Chopped, where, you know, you open up your basket and, you know, there's matzah in it and you can use it for other things. I- I- I've been in that place before where, you know, I've run out of breadcrumbs when I was doing, like, fried chicken or something in the house. And I'd be like, oh, crap, I have to find something to, dr- to dredge the meat that I'm about to fry in. Um, I think the most interesting res- result was I usually have Rice Krispies in the house and i just i threw them in a coffee grinder and made rice crumbs with them Mm. it didn't taste like quite the same but like you know i guess we could call it like a a sort of common sense substitution yeah i guess i mean i think i guess in this way it's maybe not quite the same because i think when you grind up matzo crackers and become matzo again it's a little more one-to-one doesn't essentially matzo you know it's unleavened it's unleavened dough. So it's yeah. not like you're breaking down something that's already gone through like a leavening process. You're almost turning just something that might've been compressed into a cracker back into its crumb form. So maybe one of the ones we could also talk about is prepackaged foods that help speed <laughs> up the process. Because you and I 
both had the opportunity to make this very specific prepackaged paella. Oh, uh, yes. Yes. I I remember we loved it. Like (laughs) as someone who's never made paella, who finds it quite a laborious process that, you know, you have the bacon, you have the bacon, (laughs) pouring this broth, the seafood broth into a rice for 20 minutes. And it tasted pretty darn good. Like I wasn't sure. I was fully skeptical, I will admit. But I remember being like, you know what? For 20 minutes, I'd do this. Like I would totally buy this prepackaged meal again and make it again so I can enjoy paella at home. But I know you had different thoughts on that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if anyone wants to go to Instagram at Andre Wine Review or at Nine Ounces, please, if you go through our reels, uh, I guess it'd be about six months ago at this point. We both got sent the same same press kit. And um, I couldn't leave well enough al- alone. I think we looked at each other's videos and you saw my video and was just like, how much seafood did you put in there? And it was just like... <laughs> <laughs> Cooking from a package hurt me. Um, you know, it's it's at the point where, like, if I have a, an old Protestant recipe calling for mushroom soup as a gravy, it's like if you thumb through any church cookbook circa 1980 or 1990, half the recipes call for Campbell's mushroom soup as a gravy. But I started making that from scratch even just because I like having control start to finish the, the the project but i also find cooking cathartic cathartic it's a stress release for me so like i like the challenge of trying to recreate the flavors uh but i just hurting from a package hurt hurts me but i recognize now especially because like we talked about it last week with how much pizza i've been eating with a newborn in the house there's going to be so much more packaged food in this house and the one packaged food that i have a soft spot in my heart for minus mac and cheese is rice aroni have you, have you had rice Have we had rice yet? No, we've not had rice yet. In fact, when you told me about this, I wasn't quite sure what you were talking about. Oh, man. You don't know about the San Francisco treat? No. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? What is it? Okay. Well, it's a mixture of rice and like vermicelli noodles. And you cook it in a broth, like a chicken broth. They have a few other flavors. But to me, rice is always just the chicken one. And it is like salty deliciousness. Um, rice and noodles together. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So you'll just have to make me proper rice aroni at some point so that I can compare it against my particular experience. But it, maybe in some ways, maybe this, it, it, maybe one of the other ones I could bring up is it's not necessarily even a shortcut, but it's almost the way of making it better. But you know, they say when you make fried rice, you should be using day-old rice. Yes. Like you should be using old cooked rice. You shouldn't be using fresh rice. If you want that beautiful crispy texture and you want that flavor, you actually should be using day-old rice. So for those of you who are making fried rice for the first time, stir-fried rice, and thinking, oh, I should make you know fresh pot of rice. No, 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 no. You actually should be cooking it, enjoying it fresh the day before, and leave some leftovers and use the old rice the next day to make your fried rice. Well, there we go. Coming up after the break, uh, we are going to be diving into Passover again, because not only is it Easter weekend, but it's also Passover. And Maroki, we're going to be joined by uh, some of your family to talk a little bit about yes. what's going on. I am spending this weekend in Massachusetts, in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, to be specific, a little suburb to celebrate Passover with Eric's family. So stick around. We'll get a chance to hear some of the stories and festivities after the break on 640 Toronto. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. So Andre Prue, we're well into Passover, but it's not quite over yet. It isn't? No. 
I believe it ends on next week sometime. But as I mentioned, I am down in the States right now. And earlier this week, um, just so you guys know, this one is pre-recorded because we uh, had our Seder at my partner's household on Wednesday, right at the start of Passover. So I wanted to take an opportunity to connect with my future in-laws, Carol and Steve, Carol Daigle and Steve Weiss, to get them um, to share a little bit of what Passover is all about. So thanks for joining us, guys. You're welcome. Hi. We're, it's, it's an honor. <laughs> so, so to answer your question, I don't know if you know, I was not raised Jewish. I converted after I met Steve and when, when I was with Eric. And for me, it was a matter of helping my family develop Jewish heritage, develop a sense of being Jewish. So I decided when the kids were younger that we were going to make Passover a really pretty big deal. And now my kids love bringing their friends. So it, it's it's a chance for family to celebrate being, being Jewish together in our household. Well, and not Actually, Jewish. I mean, you guys were kind enough to have me at the Seder last year. Yeah, it was it was fun. I think it's a fun time. Well, and we, you know, it's it's both about family, and in fact, now with with our grandkids, we now have four generations uh, at the seder table, uh, from my grand, from my father down to uh, great grandchildren. Uh, but we also, because we're Reformed Jewish, and because uh, several of the, in fact, maybe the majority of the people at our seder table actually are not Jewish, we have something of a uh, what I think of as a new age eclectic uh, seder. Uh, it it very, very observant seders can go on for hours and hours and hours, and they're mostly in Hebrew. Uh, we actually, uh, ours is mostly in English, and we use, uh, we actually use a children's Haggadah that we, the Haggadah is the, the, the prayer book for the Passover Seder, and it tells the essential parts of the story. And it's a great, so it's about fun, it's, an about, it's about family, uh, and it's about our friends, and we, uh, yeah. we, we look forward to it every year. I think the quintessential Jewish story is they tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. So the Seder <laughs> is the let's eat part. And it's it's a celebration of freedom. It's a celebration of Jewishness. And and we find that our kids, you know, love coming home and celebrating and, and sharing the the overeating with us. <laughs> well, I want to dig into the overeating part yes. because we had the opportunity be, to be joined by Ellie Green last week who shared with us the story and the traditions. So I want to dig right into the food and drink this week. Obviously, Carol, I've been around the hustle and I've seen you and all the children hustling and bustling in the kitchen. Mostly you, honestly. You're just overseeing <laughs> the occasional <laughs> child stepping in to help. I want you to share some of your favorite dishes that you love preparing for Passover. Well, let me go through what we do. We, um, I love to make matzo ball soup. I make two different kinds of matzo balls. I make one with matzo meal and one with matzo, just so you get a difference. I often make herb, I, you know, made it, make an herb chicken broth. I do that ahead of time and I freeze it so that way I can, I can, cook, I can have it on the Seder. I love making the desserts. This year we're having four different desserts. We're having a chocolate, flourless chocolate cake. We're having a Linzer tort. We're having um, Anya's recipe for ma macar macaroons and we're having a matzo tiramisu. So oh. that will be fun. I make several different sorbets. So we decided <laughs> if for free, if you're no longer a slave, what you do is you have a big meal. You 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 treat it like a uh an event. So we have a full seven course meal. I make this year I'm making three different sorbets. I'm making a I made a cherry, I made a mango ginger, and tomorrow I'm gonna make a passion fruit sorbet. Wow. And I normally make a tender loin of beef crusted in garlic, rosemary, and horseradish. So I make all these different things. 
we behave as if we're not slaves anymore. We're free people, and it's it's wonderful. Yeah, and uh, first of all, I'm the incredible beneficiary of all this uh, all this great cookie for starters. <laughs> uh, you know, and the the idea behind the seder is yeah, it is it is a story. It's actually it's actually one of the oldest religious ceremonies in the entire uh, world. That you can find references to it actually in the Old Testament, um, and. I think I think Seder in Hebrew means order because it's a it's a it's a ritualized dinner. There are questions that that are asked. There there's the story of the Exodus from Egypt, which is central to it's central to Judaism, really. Uh, and again, we have fun with it. Uh, instead of yeah, there, there are the ten plagues uh, in that are laid out in the story and in the Bible. We every year we have ten modern day plagues. Uh, yeah, which I won't get into now. Some of them are political, some of them are sports, some of them are... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really know funny. the sports one. I didn't know that. I'm trying to yeah. imagine what 10 modern day plagues would be. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. Um, maybe one final question, because Eli alluded to four cups of wine for Seder, and given that Andre and I are both winos, I think this is a very important part of the meal that we should be discussing. Well, and I mean, that's the thing, too, where, like, last year during uh, the Passover Seder, I was the designated driver, and my wife was, you guys didn't know yet, pregnant at the time, so that was one part of the of the Passover Seder that I wasn't able to fully partake in, but we did oh. bring a lot of good wine last year, so. And there will be a lot of good wine here tomorrow. We have in the past gone through 24 bottles of wine at one Seder. So, wow. Um, it's, it, it's, it's wild. That's impressive. Yeah, I, I, it, it is. I will say we, we're not as observant as some. We do not get kosher for Passover wine. Uh, kosher for Passover wine, really, it's not to have any leavening or yeast in it. And that's obviously a little hard to do and, and limiting in terms of one's palate. Uh, but we do have four glasses of wine. Uh, there, there are four prayers. Uh, one with each each glass, and you're supposed to have a full glass to the brim, right? Yeah, which yeah, we it, don't do because we have pretty big wine glasses. Yeah, when you're drinking out of like, if, especially if you're drinking red wine, like a proper Bordeaux glass can hold nearly a full bottle. Right. <laughs> <laughs> drink in moderation, folks. Always drink in moderation. Yes. So, yes. So, so we 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 respect people's. Uh, palates and we don't force them to drink four full glasses of wine <laughs> but that's part of the tradition is that's i think right. what we're just trying to say which i i think is is wonderful um thank you so much the two of you for taking the time i know it's been a super busy week it's gonna be an amazing seder and i'm looking forward to uh, entering food coma with you tomorrow absolutely. absolutely thanks so much guys happy passover everybody happy pesach everybody so that interview was recorded earlier this week before the passover seder uh, Maroki is still on the road, but I did have some time to file this report directly from the Seder. After three years, Passover is in full swing at the Weiss family household again, with over 20 in attendance and including a few new small humans at the table this year. I'm still working on my own Hebrew, and I'm fortunate that many of us who have the opportunity to attend the Seder are not Jewish and have the privilege to experience the celebration. I had the chance to catch up with various folks who have come to the Weiss family Seder anywhere from their first time to the 30th time and asked them to share what coming to Passover or Pesach means to them. Passover for me is a chance for 
everyone to celebrate together. See one another, especially if you haven't seen one another in a long time. Take the time to be present and celebrate, uh, preferably with wine. Seder at the Weisses is lively, <laughs> filled with tradition, and raucous fun. I love the Seder. Right on. My family is all together, and we have some wonderful friends. And uh, I look around the room, and I'm in awe of the love that is in the room and the people that are there. And they welcome everybody here. You don't need the perfect voice to sing along to the numerous songs that happen throughout the Seder, and there are always a few favorites that really get everyone up and going. Judaism in our family is like we're not the most religious or strict of Jews, but it very much means like coming together and it's that moment of bringing family together for this tradition. It's not about beating you to death with the prayers and the actual religion part. It's just like it is family. It is enjoy a good meal and a good time. It's my first Seder here, so it's just really fun to, you know, make new family members and friends. To me, Passover is an opportunity to teach the children the story of the Exodus and the importance of of struggling and fighting for freedom, uh, not just for Jews, but for everyone in the world. Passover in my household, now that I have young kids, it's about passing on the traditions of Judaism to our children. And one of the things I love most about the Seder is it's a holiday that celebrates the liberation of our people. So at the end of the Seder, we say, next year in Jerusalem, may all people be free. And so it's about making sure all people are free. And while he's not quite old enough to read the four questions in the Haggadah that are supposed to be designated to the youngest child who can read, we do have a few thoughts from one of the little ones about what he thought of Passover. Maroki Tong, coming to you from Massachusetts on Tasting Together. With all that talk about wine as part of the Passover celebration, we are going to stay on the topic of wine and talk a bit about whether or not sweet wines are your bag and maybe what you think is sweet isn't sweet at all. That's coming up after the break on 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Andre Proof. Maroki Tong. You don't like your sweet wines, do you? I love my sweet wines. What are you talking about? It's true. I, as I literally asked you that question to set up the segment, I was like, you're not the right person to ask. So instead, I'll turn to Danny Longo from the Global Newsroom. Danny! Yes? Do you like sweet wine? I do like sweet wines. Not too, too sweet, <laughs> but definitely uh, like my wines on the sweeter side. <laughs> These were not the answers you were looking for, or is it? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's just like, you know, I this is a conversation that I've, I we've talked again, talked between ourselves now and again, and I wanted to bring it up for our listeners because I feel like sometimes when, you know, we go to a store and we want to buy a bottle of wine, we, I think not everyone really knows how to describe what they're looking for, or maybe we think we do, and then we learn the hard way that it isn't because I always hear people, oh, I only drink dry wines, or they're like, oh, do you have sweet whites, or, you know, and I think that as people kind of like get into the fine wine world we get all this terminology that gets tossed around but what does it really <laughs> mean because there's something i've learned and so the reason why i brought up this discussion once again is that i was hanging out with some friends um 
And I'm, I brought a whole bunch of wine for them to taste and I'm pouring it for them. And I kept asking, well, what do you think? What do you think? And the first words I regularly hear from them is, oh, well, this one's sweeter. Um, and oh, this one's drier. Oh, I like this one. It's drier. And at the heart of it, I'm thinking to myself, they actually all have the same amount of sugar in it. So, <laughs> and I'm trying to explain this to them, right? It all has the same amount of sugar. And they're like, but it's sweeter. I'm like, uh, uh, uh. It's not like it's not the science says, you know, it's like it's like reading a nutrition label on your food. Literally, all these have three grams of residual sugar. So in the end, that's actually how your palate is perceiving it. And I often have I've learned now I use it as a way to truly get a barometer on my friends when it comes to their wine to determine whether they actually like sweet wine or they actually like dry wine and everything in between. I like that you threw in the word terminology there because I think you hit the nail on the head that there's a lot of people who don't really know what dry means. Um, when we were off the microphone, we were talking about, I think we all have that friend who is just like, oh, I really like, you know, dry red wine. My favorite wine is Apothic. And Apothic is a Californian red wine. It goes for about 20 bucks a bottle. And it has 20 grams per liter residual sugar. And here's the thing is, I think there's a lot of people in the car right now who are sitting there thinking, grams per what? Liters per what? Like, what does that even mean? Um, when you go to the LCBO shelf, they used to have an old sugar scale where wines would be given a number like zero, one, or two, where zero meant dry, one meant like kind of dry, two means you can taste the sugar. And uh, I think to be honest, Apothic would probably be a one or a two using the old sugar scale. But even then, like the old sugar scale kind of sucked because it covered such a broad range of how much sugar was in wines. And as we've talked about on the show before, once you start dealing with the X factor of acidity that comes in wine, even then, like a wine with lots of sugar could be perceived as less sweet than, you know, a, just a very phenolically ripe wine, like a wine from a warm climate. I think you're right. I definitely was in the school that used the 012 sweetness for a long time because it was the most widely used scale. And then I as we moved into residual sugar and doing grams per liter, I think the science, like the science brain in me likes the accuracy of it. So for those of you out there, it's it's very much the same as when you read a nutritional label for serving, right? When you see something that says per 100 grams, it has this many calories, this much fat, da, da, da. It's the same for wine. It's You're basically saying when it says like something has, let's use apothic as an example, 20 grams of sugar, residual sugar per liter. It means in a liter bottle, um, there would be, 20 grams of sugar in it. Now, obviously, because it is a 750 milliliter bottle, 20 grams of residual sugar will shake up to be um, divided 15. by four times five. So 15 grams of residual sugar. So there's 15 chose grams like a, of sugar in that bottle of Apothic. You actually chose like a really good um, like number for 20 because 15 grams is... There you go. So if you're an apothic lover, you basically like a tablespoon of sugar in your wine, which is nothing wrong with it. It just means that you may not enjoy wines quite as dry as you originally thought. I, I love my apothic. I am quite surprised to know that there was that much sugar in it. When I think of sweet wines, I always, I tend to think more white. You know, I'm thinking Moscato. I'm thinking a Riesling. I'm thinking something like that. And, you know, I've had many, many Moscatos that are super sweet. And, you know, I love to have them in the summer um, when it's nice outside. But I found that there are so many that are just too sweet that, you know, in my exploration of Moscatos, I found a few that I find are much more balanced and, you know, not as sweet. I, I don't want to say dry, um, but it's definitely you can taste the difference and you're not going to 
feel it the next day either. Hey, those wines with too much sugar, I think that's what will give you a hangover. Oh, definitely. Oh, and you brought up something. Yeah, you brought up something interesting too, Danny. And like, this can, this is where, you know, we can get super nerdy when we talk about sugar in wine too, is that there is wine out there that is sweet because there is like, actually sugars left over in the bottle mm. i bottle which is why it's called residual sugar right it's, it's essentially sugar that's left behind through the fermentation process and through the winemaking process um that they they choose to kind of allow the sweetness to speak for itself and usually they're lower alcohol as a result because alcohol does you know if it continues fermenting the alcohol level goes up and the sugar levels go down but there's also a lot of wine out there where they essentially, um, and Andre can correct me on this because he knows the tech behind winemaking a little bit better than me, but I guess back sweetening it is essentially when you put more sugar at the end of the, you know, that bottling to ensure that the wine has a certain amount of sweetness in it. Yeah, I don't know of many like high quality premium wines that are back sweetened at the end. Um you do have a process called chapitalization where you can throw some extra sugar into grape must before fermentation takes place. And that will often be done with the intention of giving you a little bit more alcohol. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that there, you know, there's wine out there where if you put in sugar at the end, it's going to taste very different than sugar that is naturally left in the bottle at the time of bottling. Like one will taste kind of more artificially induced. I mean, when you're, and when you're talking about adding sugar to wine, like through chapitalization or through, I guess any other sort of method of sweetening, it's it's generally just white sugar that gets added. It's not super uncommon to not just see pallets of uh, just red path sugar at some wineries in Niagara when you uh, when you get to harvest time. So there you go, folks. Now you suddenly have to worry a little bit more about what <laughs> about you put in your glass if you don't want to have well, super high sugars in your wine. And I mean, we're not trying to. And like, I don't really feel like that was the. I think it's important to, to have the conversation because, like, like, I know when the LCBO phased out the the sugar scale, like the zero one two. I don't know if the like I like I'm with you. I like the new scale better because it gives you more accuracy. Like you can see exactly how much sugar is in a particular wine. But I, I don't think it's as simple as how much sugar is in a wine. Like to what Danny said, like a Moscato with the same amount of sugar as a Riesling could come off as much sweeter because Moscato is a grape that just in general has less acid to it. And I, I don't know if we want to see the LCBO starting to put acid contents on their labels to go next to the sugar ones and you know, make things even more complicated for the consumer. But like, I just, I'm not sure what this, what the solution is other than sort of trial and error, I guess. If you don't like a wine because it's too sweet, mm -hmm. try something different. And for the folks who don't know, like if you do look at the tags in LCBO now, they do list the grams per liter uh, residual sugar on it. So you can use that as a bit of barometer. I think, yeah, it's a little bit of try trial and error. Try it yourself. As Andre said, like Moscato as a lower acid grape will taste sweeter even if let's say Riesling or even a red wine will have the same amount of sugar. The other thing about perceived sweetness is ripeness of fruit too. So I remember when I was in BC, I tasted a lot of wines where I was clock wrong again and again in guessing the residual sugar in it because the fruit gets so ripe in the Okanagan that that ripe fruit forward, like that fruit flavor for me made me think the wines were sweeter than they were even when they had less than one gram, uh, one gram per liter residual sugar. So that was actually quite shocking to me. It was probably one of the few times that I wasn't able to pick up the sugar in it. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I think I've learned um, spending so much time writing about the Ontario wine industry is there's a lot of people who to this day will still say, oh, we can't make red wine in Ontario. Then I'll ask them a follow-up question. So, well, what red wines do you like to drink? And the answer is 
nine times out of 10 or nine, 99 times out of 100, oh, I prefer Italian wine or I prefer Californian wine. And the reality is these climates just get riper and you get wines that are fruitier and opulent and juicier and jammier than you would ever get from Niagara, you know. Danny, now that you know you like a pot, I think you have to go through your entire like wine rack and see uh, what are your favorite wines and kind of determine, do you actually like wines that are a little bit sweeter than you think? Yeah, that is a great point, and I do have to do that. Um, I, I there was a there was a time when uh, I told someone I liked apothic, and then every year for Christmas I was getting a different apothic: apothic fire, apothic uh, red, apothic. Uh, it was great. It was great. It was a good time. That brand is like it's like Tribbles. You know, I don't know if anyone gets the Star Trek reference, but it's just like it just seems like every year they're doubling in different labels on the on the shelf. This has been tasting together on six forty Toronto. Tune in every Saturdays at 5 p.m. so that we can share with you things that will tickle your taste buds, whether they be a little sweet or a little dry or a little bit in between. Until next week.